turning this evening to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9 and verse 24. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And we're going to be thinking this evening of the restoration of a broken life, recorded in this chapter and in two other Gospels also, but we'll look at it from the Gospel of Mark. Now it follows Christ being uh, on a mountain with three disciples, Peter and James and John, and being astonishingly transfigured before them so that they saw him in his glory. And they, after that experience, descend from that hill, that mount, and then they find a commotion in the valley below. And what's happening is that a group of rabbis are pouring scorn on the nine disciples that were left behind, as it were. And we pick up the narrative here in this detailed chapter in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. But it's evident that it was derogatory questioning, scornful questioning. And verse 15, and I shall go through this in an expository manner this evening because it's such a, a, a wonderful uh, miracle and illustration of the work of Christ in the souls of men and women. And in verse 15 of Mark chapter 9, a strange-looking verse, and straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed. And running to him, saluted him. Well, why were they greatly amazed? What had he done? Well, this was the Lord's uh, mega-celebrity status. It is fairly early in his ministry. John the Baptist had summoned the attention of the land by remarkable preaching in the wilderness and in Galilee. And vast crowds had gathered, and he'd effectively announced the coming of the Messiah and a new age. And people had been baptized by him, symbolizing that they wanted change and they wanted to be forgiven their sin. So all this had taken place even before Christ was revealed. And then he emerged publicly and was baptized and began his own ministry of preaching at the crowds gathered and healings, very many healings. In some places, entire villages and towns, amazing, compassionate healings. There's never been a healer in the history of the world like Christ. There are people who claim to heal and... Uh, by various different means, appear to do strange and wonderful things, but there's nothing to be compared 
with the ministry of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his ministry of compassionate miracles. Uh, anyway, he was famous. And in a region where they hadn't seen him, for it to be the word to go round, Jesus of Nazareth is here. And there was immediate attention. And people flocked out to see him. There was no one more famous in the land, in effect. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, kind of starstruck in a way, and running to him, saluted him. And they wanted to be seen by him. Perhaps he'll heal our people, our sick. And Christ asked the scribes, who had been scornfully, I believe, questioning, what question ye with them? Now we don't read their answer if they ever made one. Because at that point, in verse 17, someone out of the crowd presents himself and he answers the Lord. Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And he brought a youth. He's not a small boy. Reading the narratives in the three Gospels that record this, he seems to have been more a youth. 16, 17, 18, 19, something of this order. And he has a dumb speech. In other words, he's speechless. But this is put down to the fact that he's demon-possessed. Elsewhere, it tells us that he was deaf also. He couldn't hear, he couldn't speak. Now, demon possession is not, you must be careful to understand this, demon possession in the Bible is not an ignorant way of accounting for various illnesses. The New Testament describes all the different illnesses that were encountered by Christ Quite clearly, they're all recognized as being individual illnesses. Demon possession, which may cause some of those symptoms sometimes of other illnesses, demon possession is quite distinctive and quite separate. So don't make the mistake of thinking that it's just a strange way of accounting for illness. It doesn't. In fact, when you read the Bible you realize that there was quite a, an outbreak of demon possession in the period prior to the coming of Christ. In the history of the Jews, it occurred, but nothing like on the scale that it did in the years preceding the coming of Christ. And part of the ministry of Christ was to bring to an end the involuntary possession of people by demons. Can you be possessed by a demon today? Well, yes, but you've got to almost invite it. You've got to be up to your neck in some occult practice. You've got to be immersing yourself in dark arts and investigations and sold out to that type of thing. Because involuntary possession, where a demon could 
infect, as it were, the life of an adult or child against that person's seeking or will was finished with the ministry of Christ. That's quite clear. But here's a young man who is not only sick in other ways, but he's possessed. And elsewhere, the Gospels tell us it was an unclean spirit, which could be a way of describing every case of demon possession. But many think it describes somebody who's even twisted with lusts, as well as with some other physical affliction. But this youth was certainly afflicted, and he'd been like this since childhood, which is another of the descriptions which makes us inclined to think he was a late teen, perhaps. Perhaps not much into adulthood, but at least a late teen. And the father describes his symptoms in verse 18. Wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. He has fits, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth. Fits, it looks like fits of great fury, and rage, and anger, or frustration. And he can't live with himself, and he can't stand the people around him and his environment, but he doesn't understand and doesn't know what's the matter with him, and he can't express it, and he pineth away. He doesn't eat, literally, so he's a shadow of what he should be, and he's wasted. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. They tried, evidently. They tried, but they were ineffective. And Christ answered them, verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. The more he healed, the more he demonstrated his divine power, the more there were people who could not trust in him. If you can help me, this man said, if you can help us, if you can do anything. He wasn't sure. He approaches Christ. It's a kind of long shot. He doesn't fully believe that he's the Messiah, long promised, long prophesied in the Old Testament. They brought their youth to Christ. Verse 20, actually the Greek verb translated there, brought, literally is they carried. And it rather implies that the youth didn't want to come. But certainly if he'd been walking under his own power, he would have soon turned aside and been thrown down. So they carried him. They brought him unto him. They carried him unto him. And when he saw him, this is the youth, straightway the spirit tear him. He had a massive fit and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. 
And Christ asked his father, verse 21, how long is it ago since this came unto him? Christ didn't need to ask that, of course. He knew the answer already. He knew all things. The question was asked so that the answer should be heard by the bystanders, such as were there, and recorded for us that this case had been uh, incurable since childhood, of a child. And verse 22, he elaborates, there's tremendous self-harm. Oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. How had he been saved from these occasions? Well, presumably the family or others had plunged into the water or somehow dragged him from the fire that he'd thrown himself into and he'd survived. Can you imagine what this youth looked like? Sunken cheeks, white as a sheet, drawn, bruised probably. The effects of all these fits and pining away. And the man says, have compassion on us. The Greek's very powerful. Oh, may you be moved in your bowels, is the graphic language of the Greek. Show deep sympathy to us, Master, Rabbi, and help us. It's his way of saying, it's only pity will cause you to help us. We have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, no merit to speak of. We are not special people. We have no accomplishments, no deserving of any kind. Master, just out of the goodness of your heart, help us. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And that's absolutely true. That is to say, if you believe the right thing, if you believe in Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he's the creator of all worlds, that through Christ, the second person of the Trinity, according to the Scripture, God created everything that is made. He is the one for whom everything was made. And he is the saviour of lost men and women, alienated from God. He is the only hope for the forgiveness of God and for eternal life. Because as we constantly explain, God cannot forgive sin. God cannot overlook sin. He is a holy God and an entirely just God and sin must be destroyed by punishment. God cannot contradict his own infinitely holy nature. It cannot be done. Therefore, if God is going to forgive us, he must come himself and be a man and take our punishments and feel it as we should have felt it.
and Christ came, the God-man, and suffered on Calvary's cross the eternal punishment of all those who in the history of the world would believe in him and rely on him. Jesus said, All things are possible to him that believeth in Christ, believeth in him, believeth in his power and his love, believeth in what he has done to secure and purchase salvation for us. If you believe sincerely with all your heart, we're going to find you can still have doubts. Sin is still within us. There's a rebellious soul within us. Half of us, when we're seeking the Lord, reaches out for him, save me, change me, give me eternal life. But there's another voice within us saying, how can you believe that? How can you be certain? I'd have to give up my sin. I'd have to give up my pride and my greed and my selfishness. I don't want to do that. I want my self-determination. I want to be a person who achieves in my own name and can be proud of myself. I want to have what I want to have. And that voice is within. And that's the voice that clutches on to every conceivable doubt. And even when we come to seek Christ, we're a bundle of desire and doubt. And so was this man. How eagerly wanted his son to be healed. Christ went round the nation healing. Surely he could, ought to be able to do something. He is more than an ordinary person. He's at least a great prophet. Most say he's supposed to be the Messiah. Is that true? But he's a mixture, you see, of belief and unbelief. And he comes, and he cries out, and with tears, that's surely a measure of the sincerity in him, Lord, I believe. I believe you're God incarnate, you're Messiah, you're the expected great descendant of Abraham and David who would deliver the human race from sin. I believe it. Help thou mine unbelief. Crush the doubts within me. Sweep them away. Open my eyes so that I can see reality and truth. That's often the case when we come to Christ. But I'll come to that in a moment. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together to acclaim him to marvel at him, to see a spectacle and a miracle. He didn't want to, the Lord didn't want to turn the healing of the youth into a mere spectacle. So as soon as he saw them running together, he got on with it. He rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And the youth, the young man, he was as one dead. 
insomuch that many said so. He's dead. He's dead. They've lost him. But why did Christ allow that to happen? Well, it's obvious. So that he could take the boy by the hand and raise him, apparently, from the dead. So that there would be a picture there of the amazing sympathy and kindness of the Lord, coupled with the power of the Lord to give life even to one who seemed to be dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and he took him to his house. Dear friends, the compassionate miracles of Christ all have a message. They literally happened, but they all have a message and they show how Christ deals with us, not just physically, but spiritually. That's the most important thing. And there are parallels between the state of this young man, this youth, and all of us, if we've never been converted. There are many parallels. By his condition, he was rendered speechless. And so are we. Before I was converted, I couldn't pray. I thought I could sometimes, in emergencies, on rare occasions, in special needs. I thought, well, surely anybody can pray. That wasn't prayer, friends. That was just a kind of silent uttering to the empty skies, something done vainly, in vain hope, and not all that sincerely meant and believed in. I couldn't pray. Before we converted to God, we can't really pray. We don't know him. We have no assurance that he hears prayers. We've had no experience of answered prayer. We don't know anything about that. We're speechless. He couldn't hear. Nor can we. I read before conversion. I would sometimes read pages of the Bible, either during education or whatever. What a dry book. What a meaningless book. What a puzzling, confusing book. It didn't speak to me. It had no moral demand upon me. It didn't impress me. It was as though I'd never touched it. I couldn't hear, perceive, grasp the word of God. You come to God, you trust in him and believe in Christ and pray for forgiveness and ask for new life. And all part of the process is that you're given illumination, light by God. And suddenly the scriptures come to life. And why did I never see this? There's their tremendous unity and their message and their depths 
and their consistent nature and their wonder. I never saw it before. And I see my Saviour here in the Scripture, prophesied in the Old Testament, recorded in the New. Oh, friends, what a transformation. And when I pray, I have the assurance that God hears my prayers and he certainly answers them. And every Christian will tell you the same. The experiences of answered prayer down through the years. Why, dear friends, it's, it's life from the dead. Christ took the youth by the hand and lifted him up. And look at that boy wallowing on the ground, teeth gnashing, always in a rage. You couldn't communicate with him. He couldn't do anything. What a terrible state to be in. His parents must have grieved hour by hour. But that's us viewed spiritually before we're converted. We don't worship. We don't study God. We don't understand him. We're not filled by him. We don't know his plans. We don't know his ways. We're cut off from him. We're furious if people talk to us about him. We don't want to hear too much of that. We shy away like the youth gnashing his teeth in frustration, unable to communicate with anyone. It really, there are parallels between the tragic state of the young man and his condition would throw him into the fire and into the water. And so it is with us. Before we find God and we find conversion and we know Christ, we're constantly doing things which will be fatal to our souls and take us further away from God and bring us more deeply under his judgment and banish us from eternal bliss and heaven. Self-harm spiritually is the order of the day in almost everything we do. We get worse in our pride and selfishness and all other things that may be the matter with us and wrong with us. So there are parallels. When you look at this miracle, what the Father does tells us what we should do. He sought help. We need the help of God, his forgiveness, reconciliation with him, new life. He sought it. He believed. That's what we must do. Trust and believe in Christ and ask him for mercy. We don't deserve it, but ask him, pray to him for life and mercy. What happened to the boy shows us what God does. The boy needed total transformation. He needed total healing. He couldn't hear, he couldn't speak, he couldn't act properly. He couldn't communicate. He couldn't do anything. Almighty God had to do it all for him and deliver him. And that's conversion. Strangely, we must come. We must seek. We must ask. We must trust Christ. We must consent to his rule. We must give ourselves to him. 
ask him for salvation but it's all a work of God we are hopeless lost sinners we depend upon Christ that he died on Calvary to suffer for all those who would ever be forgiven and saved and we must trust depend upon him he will change us he will transform us he will make us new every act of Christ was also a picture of how he works. And it's so here with this man. Our time is up. Dear friends, may these be your words. Mark chapter 9, verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Take it away, Lord, and save me and make me thine. Let's pray. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, deal graciously with us. Help us and draw us. If we have been resistant to thy loving kindness and to thy grace, resistant to the very mention of thy name. O Lord, melt our hearts, show us our great need of salvation, and draw us near in thy mighty love. We ask it in the name of Christ, our Saviour. Amen.